Hopefully by now you are aware of our 2016 theme, which is strong and courageous. Our theme verse for this year is Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, although certainly many times in Scripture where God encourages his people to be people of strength and courage. This is the one we're focusing on because it had uh, so much similarity to our uh, situation at Northside. And that is that we are in a time of transition, of leadership, and specifically in the pulpit. But we, as we go along, we want to encourage you to be strong and courageous in many areas of your life, which means not so much trusting in yourself, not so much trusting in your own abilities, but learning to trust the, the God that we serve more and more. And so one of the ways that we want to do that is by encouraging to get in your Bibles on a daily basis, one program that we have uh, to do that is our Northside 90 Days reading program, and we have encouraged you to take part in that, to read through the New Testament in 90 days. Uh, here is Aaron Shady and his grandmother, Margaret Shady, as they headed down, I think, to San Antonio. And as they were headed down for their spring break, uh, they were partaking in their daily Bible reading and doing that together. It's a wonderful thing, and I appreciate, again, all the number of pictures, videos, comments, uh, questions that people have posted uh, via email, via text, uh, social media, and the like has been a great encouragement to me, and I hope to you as well. We are on day 71, which means we're uh, very close now to the end. And if you haven't started, as I do each week, I want to encourage you to start. And don't worry about starting at day one and, and doing 70 days of reading in one afternoon. Uh, just go ahead and start at day 71. And we will, I believe, start in the book of Titus today. And so that would be a great thing if you haven't been doing that, and we'd encourage you to do so. Our current series uh, this, this time of the year is Glorious Day, where we're focusing on Jesus, specifically the gospel message, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Last week and the week prior to that, we focused on his life and how he loved us and how in dying he saved us. We said last week that, that his death was the planned punishment for, him, for our sin and that in doing so, he satisfied God's requirement for both justice and mercy. He fulfilled the prophet's promise that God himself would provide a lamb. I need to step out from behind the pulpit to show you what you probably suspected already, and that is, I'm a powerful athlete. That wasn't a joke, people. People knowing this are always asking me for, uh, to try different things. And recently, I have some, I'm going to use air quotes here because I think that's appropriate, friends who uh, invited me and encouraged me to sign up for a new thing called boxing. And that's not the funny part. The funny part is that I actually said yes. <laughs> Title Boxing Club has a new club open on the west side of Wichita. It's pretty close. To their locate, new location is pretty close to my house. And so I was out of excuses. And so I said, yes, I'll go. And so Thursday morning, early Thursday morning, uh, I go with Justin Harold to go and be Rocky. And... Uh, you know, I'm getting all these great visions in my mind of climbing stairs and yelling out, Adrian! But that's not exactly how it worked out. 
You see, when they, when they take you through this class, it's, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of cardio. It's a lot of running in place. It's, it's a lot of doing ab work and, and doing jumping jacks and push-ups. And, and about 15 minutes of that, I was like, man, this is a great workout. I am done. And the little lady teaching the class said, all right, that's it with warm-up. Now we're ready for the class. So we do another 45 minutes. And I didn't do too bad at first. You know, I'm... I'm Doing the uppercut, doing the uppercut, I mean, doing the, doing the cross. Uh, I, I'm punching as best as I can. I'm trying to learn the ways. I'm ducking, I'm hitting, I'm swerving, I'm jiving, I'm whatever I'm supposed to do. And I, it's just wearing me out. But, you know, I, I don't want to look like I'm worn out. So I just every now and then look over at Justin. He's like, how's it going? <laughs> Sean is over there working the counter. How's it going? What what'd you think? Good. Uh, went home and collapsed, fell asleep for six hours. Not a lie. I didn't have any more fight left in me. I don't know how Rocky fought that Russian guy. That was crazy. He was doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Th- that workout taught me one thing about boxing. One is, I'm probably not meant to do it, but I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, two is, you know, I think I heard somebody say that pain is weakness leaving the body. And if that's true, I got a lot of weakness. I mean, when I was walked out there, out of the class that morning, my arms were spaghetti. I mean, it was just all I could do to open the truck door and drive home. Now, that's a funny illustration to point out a serious point. Have you ever been at the point in life where you don't have any fight left in you? Last week we talked about the death of Christ, and um, this is kind of where we left it. Jesus paid it all all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The problem is that as we think about the life the death and the burial of Jesus, you and I know the story with the end in mind. But what I want to focus on this morning is that though it is finished and our debt has been paid in full, they didn't know that that day wasn't the end of the story. You see, that day they watched their Messiah die. They watched their rabbi crucified. They watched their leader completely, totally, publicly killed. It was, if you were writing a story, that would have been the end. And that meant a lot of dark things. Have you ever been to the point in your life where it seems like the end? When 
you just don't have any fight left in you, and it seems like all hope is lost, then you identify well with the disciples on Saturday morning. Maybe you've had one of those days where you just think it can't get any worse, and the only good thing about that day is the ending of it. And so you get into your bed, and you pull the covers up over your head, and you just mercifully end the day. You go to bed, you sleep, you rest, you wake up the next morning, and there's a split second as you wake up before you remember what happened the day before. There's that moment where you realize that, oh, and then all of a sudden the memories come flooding back. Saturday morning was like that for the disciples. They, they woke up as they had for the last thousand days, ready to get up for a new adventure, to follow Jesus, to, to listen to him, to, to ask him questions, to hear his stories, maybe to see a miracle. But this Saturday would be different. Because for the first time in 150 Saturdays, Jesus wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be around. His cold, stiff body had been taken from that cross and wrapped in linen strips and covered with burial spices and laid in the borrowed tomb of a friend. You see, to them, this was a tragic day, not just because they lost their friend, not just because they had, had said, I'm all in with Jesus, and it, all of a sudden it seemed like Jesus was just bluffing the whole time. They didn't have a hand worth playing. Now, see, this was a tragic day because, because if he was really dead in that tomb, then, then he was just a charlatan. He was just an ordinary guy who had fooled them all. He had taken them on a wild ride, and it ended like every other man and woman on earth in the tomb. Now, I know he had told them that, that, that he was going to die and that three days later he would come back. But you know, on that Saturday morning, they didn't remember that. All they remembered was watching their friend, their master, their teacher, their rabbi, their leader killed. What's this all about? You know, as Christians, we, we rush through this. I mean, when we talk about the gospel story, we talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. But really, the burial is the longest, most agonizing part of the story. Anywhere from 24 to 40 hours, depending on how you count the time. But it was absolutely the most agonizing, horrendous part of the story. And maybe you've been there. Oh, oh, not to the tomb, but, but maybe in your own life you've been there where, where you just thought things don't look good. Things are not going well. What is the point of this day? What, what is the point of, of the day where Jesus wasn't, where they, the disciples had no answers and only questions? Why, why did God do that? I mean, couldn't he have, at the moment he said to Telestah and gave up his spirit, couldn't he have just have resurrected him that moment? Why did, why did he make him linger in the tomb? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. There's lots of reasons for that. We're just going to address a couple. But you need to know as we linger together in the dark, early hours of Saturday morning, that there was a purpose behind 
the day of death, the, the burial, the silence of God. Let's look in Scripture together. The first thing we want to note is that Jesus' burial was a real event. Now, you may say, well, okay, obviously, but not everyone believes that. Some people don't believe that Jesus was even a real person, only a figure of mythology. But historically, he was very real, and he died in a very public manner. Crowds watched him die. His enemies called for his death, and those who were experts in delivering death, the Roman soldiers, made sure that he agonized in it and lingered in it. And they witnessed that he died just after a few hours. They didn't even need to break his legs. One soldier simply violently, harshly shoved a spear up into the side where it ruptured his heart. He was as dead as any man could have been and witnessed in in so many ways by so many people. But his burial, too, was witnessed by many and certified in a public way. You may have heard just the facts. Well, let's talk about the facts of Jesus' burial. Where is the tomb? Well, if you go to Israel today, there's a couple of sites where they would say the modern-day tomb might have been. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is where you can go into. It's actually a church, and and Elaine was showing me this. It's an amazing place. It, It absolutely is not what you have pictured in your mind of what Jesus' tomb looked like. But there is a place where they believe he may have been buried. There is the garden tomb, which is a bit outside the city, much more serene, in a peaceful garden. And this is the picture probably most of you have. But the truth is, we don't know exactly the place where Jesus was buried, because there's lots of tombs near Jerusalem. The point is not the tomb. The point is that we worship a one who could not be contained by the tomb. When I was talking to this about with Elaine, because Elaine, if you don't know, Uh, Grew up in Israel, and she knows that land very well. She said, I've been to both those places, but she said, I think the reason we don't know for sure which tomb is Jesus is because we tend to place reverence on places instead of people. And if we knew the exact tomb that Jesus came out of, we would worship the tomb instead of worshiping the one who came out of the tomb. And I think that's right. When was he buried? Well, he was buried Friday. Mark chapter 15, if you're turning in your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 15, verses 42 and 43. The scripture says, it was preparation day. And Mark puts a parenthetical here. He says, that is the day before the Sabbath. The Jews had some rules and some stipulations about those who were executed and to not leave their bodies up on the Sabbath. So as evening approached, verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body. Who buried him? Was it just Joseph? No, there was someone else. Turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, you're going to look in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, John writes, asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took away the body. Verse 39 of John 19. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds. 
Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. You see, in, in our time, a body is embalmed. The, the fluids are taken out and replaced with more or less preservatives that are designed to keep the corpse from decaying. That wasn't the case in the Jewish world. Instead, they knew they expected the body to decay, so they wrapped it in special linen cloths and they covered it with spices that would, that would cover the odor as the body would begin to rot and turn back to the dust from which it came. Well, we might ask the question, why? Was, why did Jesus die? Why didn't, as I said, he just be immediately resurrected? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he's just another man. And if Jesus is just another man, then Christianity is a religion just like any other religion. You see, Muhammad started a religion, and, and he died, and he's still in his tomb today. Buddha started a religion, and he's still in his tomb today. We're the only religion... They can truthfully say that the one who started it could not be contained by the grave. Secondly, we know that his body was prepared for death. Now, this is interesting because we can look at the story and see that even Jesus' closest friends expected him to be dead, expected him to die. They were going through the normal customs of the day for a person who had deceased. They provided the spices, they anointed his body, they expected his corpse to do no differently. There was no plan to steal the body, there was no plan B for what they were going to do, anything than bury the body and mourn the loss of their friend. In those ways, Jesus' burial was a very real and common event, but Jesus' burial was also a very unique event. Turn to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, starting in verses 62 and following. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. This is Saturday. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Now we're in verse 64. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. That last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure By putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. I don't know if you've ever had that thought, but I can remember as a teenager reading Matthew chapter 27. In fact, I was reading it during the Lord's Supper. And I read it, and I thought, specifically as I read verse 63, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And the thought occurred to me, what, what if that's true? What if we have all been duped? What if I'm sitting here memorializing a guy who is still dead? 
That's why Scripture has it in there. Because I'm not the first person to think that. And there's a lot of evidence for why that's not true. I'm just going to address a couple as they relate to the burial of Christ this morning. First, it says that the tomb was sealed. Now, you and I have... Different meanings for the word seal, uh, from sealing an envelope to sealing uh, our fate. Uh, it is in the, in the Greek word, the, the word is spragazo. Spragazo means a legal seal used for sealing, kind of like we do, letters, possessions, and in some cases, a tomb. Now, what was what was done there? Was it just a seal put on the front of the tomb and they considered it sealed? No, it, it was kind of like think about like a notary public today. You know, when, when someone notarizes something, if they do it legitimately, they have to verify that what they're notarizing is legitimate. And so the Roman officials, when they sealed the tomb, it wasn't just a matter of, of bringing putting the seal officially on the, the stone. It was they had to go inside. They had to inspect the tomb. They had to inspect the body to verify that Jesus was really indeed dead, that his body was in the tomb. And then when they sealed that, there would be Roman documents that they would put their signature to say, I viewed the tomb. I looked inside. Jesus was there. His body is still there. We sealed it with the stone and we put the seal in front of it. The seal itself was usually made of wax or clay. And it was usually fastened on there with some ligaments at either side. As long as the seal remained unbroken, it guaranteed that the contents inside were safe, that they were undisturbed, and that they had been verified. Secondly, a Roman guard was placed. Now, these are, as I said, the, the, the men who were trained in death. They were professionally trained it was a group of Roman soldiers, depending on which account you read, somewhere between three or four. And they were changed their shift every three hours so that they were continually awake, alert and attentive. Um, imagine Chuck Norris times three or four. These were the guys in front of the tomb that had been sealed and authenticated by the government of Rome. I can say, as I did last week, there have been lots of people crucified in the way that Jesus was, but no one, no one has been buried like Jesus was. I don't know what your funeral plans involve or if you've made them yet, but if you've got plans for sealing your tomb and posting a guard to make sure that you stay dead, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that because... Well, at least not immediately, you're not coming out. But Jesus had promised that he was coming out, and so they made unique preparations for his unique burial. It was sealed, it was guarded. You can know of anyone that might have perpetrated such a terrible hoax, it could not have been Jesus or his disciples. They were common, ordinary folks, blue-collar they were not trained in, in, in pulling off these kind of things. He, his body was in there. It was in there Friday, Saturday, and part of Sunday. And though it was a unique, real event, his burial was also a meaningful event. It was meaningful 
to them. Meaningful in a kind of a sad sort of way. In Luke chapter 24, Luke the doctor records that Mary says this in the garden. But we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. You see, it wasn't for them, it wasn't just a body being put in a tomb. It was their hope had been lost. It was that the one that they put their hopes in had been taken away. Oh, there's a lot of sad things you could bury, but hope is one of the worst. In John chapter 21, the apostle whom Jesus loves describes this way. Now, it's after Jesus has been resurrected, but some of the disciples don't know that. And in chapter 21, it says, After Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the other two disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Now that's maybe just a little throwaway thing there. But it's really not, because what John's saying there is that these guys had given up. I mean, they had to really start thinking, what are we going to do now? What's our livelihood? How are we going to provide for our families? What's the next step? If we close this chapter and turn this new chapter, and, and when they say, I'm going to fish, they're saying, well, I guess, I guess I'll just go back to what I, the only thing that I know. See, they're giving up. They're they're losing hope. They're forgetting what Jesus had taught them. And, of course, he's going to, in the rest of the chapter, uh, beautifully, wonderfully remind them of who he is. It's meaningful because it's a prophecy fulfilled. In Psalm 49, the psalmist writes this, God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. Isaiah 53 says he would be buried with the rich in death. It was a prophesied death. And finally, it was a promised kept. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. One of these times where Jesus explains, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day Raised to life. But secondly, it's meaningful not just to them and to their day, but it's meaningful to us. As was read for us earlier, Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You and I, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I've seen a lot of tragic deaths in ministry. I could tell you the story of a very young couple and their very first child. And they had a little baby boy. And that little baby boy would only live for a few hours Now, you imagine what it's like to 
have a baby, that you have all of these hopes and dreams for, especially your first, but knowing that he doesn't have the physical capability and we don't have the technology to do anything but just hold him and love him for the few hours he has in this world. I could tell you the story of of a mother and father who lost their daughter in a terribly tragic car accident. And I received the phone call informing me about that accident. All I heard in the background was, was mourning and weeping. I could tell you the story of a family who lost one of theirs, and this was a man about my age with young children, and he died suddenly and tragically, leaving two little children and a widowed wife behind. And as I sat in that funeral and the family came in, there wasn't a dry eye in the house because he had died far too soon. Death is tragic. Death in these cases is especially tragic, but the death of Jesus is far more than just a tragic death. It is a meaningful death. It was done to pay the price for our sins. Micah, the prophet in Micah chapter 7, verse 19, says this, You will tread our sins underfoot, And hurl our iniquities to the depths of the sea. I I just love that picture. That that God takes our sin like a terrible anchor in a weight. And and through the the burial of Christ, he, he just drops it. And it sinks lower and lower and lower until it's just buried at the bottom. When Jesus was buried, there was so much more that was buried besides his body. It was our sins that he took That through his sacrifice, we could have redemption with God. And so, his burial was real. It was unique, but it was meaningful. And if we're going to take part in his death, which the scriptures tell us we have to do. Colossians chapter 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism. And raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. We must be buried with him. There's no other hope. That there's no other way into Christ than to be buried with him. Not in the very same way that he was. But when you decide to follow Jesus, it's not just a matter of praying a prayer. It's not just saying, I trust Jesus. Jesus commanded, his apostles commanded. We know over and over again that to become a Christian, it starts with a funeral. It starts with a burial. This morning, I want to invite you to a funeral. And if you're not in Christ, the funeral I'm asking you to attend is yours. To to die to the old self, to put the old man of flesh behind you, to bury it with Christ that you might be raised to walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful, powerful story that the burial of Christ was indeed a dark day. But as the scriptures tell us, darkness may come for a night, but joy, joy comes in the morning. And that's what we get to talk about next week. But know that the joy of the morning did not come without the darkness 
and despair of the night of the burial. If you're ready to be buried with Christ, or if you've been buried with Christ but you haven't been living like it, and you need our help, our love, our encouragement, and our prayers, uh, please come. I want to invite you right now. Please come. Don't wait one more minute. Please come as we stand and sing.